I made the uh, fatal mistake of having a cream cracker before I came out tonight, and it's uh, taken all the moisture out of my mouth. The last time I did that was when I was uh, making my refereeing debut in League One. I'd had, must have been four or five cream crackers before we started the match, and after about ten minutes I'd felt my mouth completely drying up. It was the best flown game of football anywhere, because I never blew my whistle once. Anyway, good evening. It's uh, good to have you here tonight. Let me extend my welcome to that of Johnny's. Um, We're going to turn to our passage now, but before we do that, let us just ask um, for God's help as we come to the Word. Heavenly Father, that what we have just sang, we pray that that would be true tonight as we come to consider your Word. Lord, that you would speak to us through it, that you would plant it deep within us. Lord, that we would take the truths that we read from this passage and that they would become actionable in our lives. Lord, that they would pass down through eternity and that they would shape and fashion us. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to what you would have us here tonight. And we pray that we would go away with hearts renewed and minds focused on serving you better as a church. In your precious Son's name, amen. As advertised, our uh, passage this evening is from Titus 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through to 9. We're picking up exactly from where Willie left last Sunday, and we're going to read through to the section's end at chapter 9. It's a section that's called Qualifications for Elders. We will read it through as we normally do in the ESV translation, but just before we do that, I just want a quick note. Please understand that when we get to the word overseer in our translation, it is to be used directly interchangeable with the word elder. We should consider them to be one and the same thing. If you're using an NIV translation, you'll see elder. If you're in the New King James Version, you will see it as bishop. Um, And it would also apply to pastor, minister, etc. They are all one and the same thing. Same function, different titles. Let's read verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I wonder if you've ever had the joy of filling in a job application form online. 
Many large employers these days are not satisfied with the submission of a covering letter and a CV. They want to run through psychometric tests and to ask you pre-interview questions such as why have you applied for this role and what would make you the standout candidate. They want you to detail explicitly how you would fulfill all the job spec requirements and to lay out your compliance to the qualifications before you're even considered for the next stage in the process. It's a laborious affair, but one uh, aspect that I feel important that I find often missing from this process is the ability to assess one's character. You get no real sense of a person from this process, at least in my humble opinion. Algorithmic filters don't really determine one's authentic self. Are they a person of integrity? Do they smile? What's their work ethic like? What's their general demeanor like? How do they fare in the face of adversity? Are they resilient, empathetic, trustworthy? It's hard to tell from an online portal. All these things only really come out into the open when you've witnessed a person in action, when you've seen them exposed to varying different circumstances and trials, when you have seen some degree of consistency and how they respond to different situations. Titus 1 and verses 5 to 9, when we come to assessing the qualifications of a believer and specifically in relation to elders, are all about one's character. They are all about what a person is like beyond the rudimentary qualifications, beyond the compliance criteria, and that's what we're going to explore tonight. And I would like to do so in three sections, a little bit like responding to that online recruitment portal. And what I would like us to walk through is how it builds up in blocks, looking first at the essential qualifications, the broadly sent around a theme of self-control and their applicability, then looking at an additional qualification and its applicability before moving to two differential qualifications and how they apply. So essential, additional, and differential. Let's begin. Essential. These broadly refer to an element of self-control and are laid out for us in verses 6 to 8. And what's important to highlight here is that there are many essential self-control qualifications in this passage that makes the applicability of this passage universal to all Christians. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your lens, Scripture and its application is always universal all the time applicable to everyone. And that truth is evident here. So if you've come tonight thinking it's only going to be the elders in the spotlight, then I'm afraid that you're going to be left shortchanged. You see, the thing that you may actually observe when you read or listen to this passage is the unexceptional essence of most of these self-control qualifications. In other words, the list doesn't begin by saying, very well then, An elder or an overseer must have a certain intelligence level. If it did, there would be many of us that wouldn't qualify. Or that they must have some kind of charismatic gift or some extraordinary leadership trait and stand head and shoulders above everyone else. It doesn't say anything like that. Listen to what it says. 
It says he mustn't be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which in first reading is not an extraordinarily high standard. He must be the husband of one wife. Again, not the most onerous of requests. He must manage his own household well. That too sounds rather reasonable, doesn't it? There is no real hint of extraordinary qualifications. What's going on then? Well, in some respects, the list of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. These qualifications are ordinary in the sense of being imposed on all believers, with only two exceptions which I'll come to at point three. But they're not ordinary in the sense of being commonplace. When you work through the list, you discover that nearly every single one of them is mandated somewhere else in the New Testament for all believers. So, for example, when we're told that an elder must not be given too much wine, that doesn't mean that the rest of us are allowed to get roaring drunk, because we know elsewhere in Scripture that there's plenty of a passage that warns against this kind of thing. When we're told that an elder is supposed to manage his own household well, well, aren't we all? And when we're told that he's not to be a lover of money, does that mean that the rest of us can be greedy materialists? Of course it doesn't. In everything, you can find this case that is laid on the back of an elder is laid on the back of everybody in the church. Thus, for example, not quarrelsome. The rest of us are not allowed to just be contentious. There isn't anything here except for two things that, as I said, we'll come to that make the elders stand out as someone who is qualitatively different than anyone else. Rather, the idea is that what is mandated of the whole community must be exemplified by the elders. In other words, if there's a certain kind of moral tone that is expected of all Christians, then surely the leaders have to exemplify that moral tone in particular. Now, the question to both you and me is, do we genuinely seek to live out these self-controlled qualifications, these building blocks that mark a life transformed by Jesus. This is day 21 of the new year. How many of these essential qualities have been fully true of you and I this year? Have we consistently been self-controlled in our speech, in our thoughts, in our propensity toward control and power? Have we spent days thinking about our next pay rise or our next holiday at the cost of charity and time spent on more helpful topics? Have we overindulged in food and drink? Have we been self-controlled in our interactions with family, friends, co-workers, those who we may find more challenging from time to time? Or have we been quick to temper and frustration? Have we been disciplined in holding firm to the word as taught, committing ourselves wholeheartedly to that plan that we make at the beginning of every year to have a better prayer life and a greater hunger for daily devotion. It's not easy, is it? But that's what we have to strive for. That's what we have to seek the Spirit's help. And these are the essential things that bring about good fruit, the characteristics that mark a life transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus. And if we don't do them, then the opposite can so readily become true. The writer Melissa 
Kruger gives us a helpful analogy in this regard. Picture with me for a moment, she says, two trees up in the distance. Both are heavy laden with apples. And the natural assumption, therefore, is that you've come across two apple trees. However, when you walk up and you arrive at the base of the trees, you notice that they differ in one very important way. On the first apple tree, apples hang naturally from the stem, just as you'd expect. The second tree causes you to look in bewilderment. All of the apples on that tree have been tied to it. Painstakingly, someone has spent hours trying to make this apple tree appear to be an apple tree. Close inspection reveals that the reality is that the fruit was not born from the inward sap of the tree, but from the outward labors of someone trying to create an illusion. And we can all spot the futility of such labor in an apple orchard, knowing full well that hanging apples on a tree does not make them an apple tree, can't we? However, I have a feeling this might be how many of us go about our attempts to bear fruit in our spiritual lives. Rather than holding true to the trustworthy word, we try and do things off our own back. We try to grow our own fruit. Galatians 5 and 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These graces show forth the beauty of the Spirit's work in every believer. The sap of the Spirit produces fruit in the life of the Christian. Yet each of us will find ourselves in situations where we feel unloving, impatient, unkind, or lacking joy and self-control. All of these have occurred in me in the first 21 days of this year. And faced with our own barren tree, we often attempt in our own strength to grow that what is not growing in our hearts. We determine that we will act lovingly so to that unlovable person. We, we try and be kind to that annoying relative or we try to faithfully serve that ministry while grumbling about it in the background. We work harder, we'll be more disciplined, we'll pick ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps and we'll try and do all this on our own effort without planting ourselves in Christ. Now, let me clarify, hard work, discipline, and diligent labors are all good things. Even Paul said, I will work harder than any of them. But then, lest he be misunderstood, he rightly said, though it is not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It is the work of God's grace through the power of the Spirit that fuels our obedience. And that's what we see in our passage. It's by holding to that firm, trustworthy word as taught, verse 9, that we'll be able to effectively practice and demonstrate the essential self-control characteristics of a life made and marked by Christ. Those are the essential foundational qualification traits. Not basic traits, but fundamental traits. Fundamental in the respect that practice thereof is born out of a changed heart with a spirit-filled desire to yield behaviors and characteristics demonstrative of that changed condition. This has to be true and applicable for every believer. The additional qualification that I think we see threaded through this passage 
concerns something greater than self-control. It notches up a level. Not only should we be self-controlled, careful with our indulgences and attitude toward others and money, but we should also be intentional in going above and beyond. And I want to make a particular point of this because I think it's an absolutely critical part of our church's ministry here at Hebron, both in the building up of believers within this fellowship, but also in breaking down barriers to reach those unchurched. And whilst it's a qualification that should be exemplified absolutely by those in overseeing roles, it's also pertinent to every believer. And we know this because that's how it's spelt out for us in Hebrews 13. And for those of you unfamiliar with that passage, the additional characteristic that I'm speaking about is the characteristic of hospitality. That's what we see referenced in verse 8. You will notice that this is listed as the first of six positive traits. The preceding verse has been the avoidance of negative traits, those things without good self-control. Now, Paul ratchets it up to speak about the positives we must accentuate, and prime amongst them is the virtue of hospitality. Remember, this letter is being written by Paul to Titus, and he's on the island of Crete. Crete at that time was an intermediary trading post, and literally thousands of traveling folks and merchants were passing back and forth across the island each day, coming and going and reaching far places of the Roman Empire. The culture on the island is obviously Greek. There's an affinity towards uh, man-made gods such as Zeus, but it is literally a kaleidoscope of cultures mashing together at any given time because of the amount of foreign trade. And this, of course, creates a huge opportunity for the gospel, but it also represents a significant risk to the gospel, as there most definitely would have been those who would seek to persecute and slander a faith that promotes grace, love, and self-control, which spoke out against the accumulation of wealth at others' expense, which encouraged one to be selfless rather than selfish. And so this idea of the Christian being hospitable was not only countercultural, but absolutely necessary for the furtherance of the gospel. Necessary in two senses. Necessary in the first sense that hospitality was required to give shelter and protection to those who would preach the gospel. This was rough pioneering territory, this island of Crete. It would have been virtually impossible for the church to survive external pressures from the outside had its members not been able to come and worship together regularly and encourage one another. And to do that, they needed homes. When we think of hospitality, I'm sure our reference point is normally a relaxed Sunday dinner over a roast with other friends from church. Do we ever consider that hospitality in places like China and Iran is actually the facilitation of what we take for granted in this building right now. That there are people meeting in upper and lower rooms incognito, risking their lives and livelihoods to facilitate the praise and teaching of God. And that those people who are hosting or providing hospitality 
are likely to be held primarily liable if they're ever discovered. Does that bring another perspective to hospitality? Does that sharpen the requirement here a little bit more in your mind's eye? The second sense of hospitality is hospitality for the building up of the church and growth of the gospel. A shelter for the weary merchant, a meal for the widow, a place of fellowship and deliberation for the local church. This is the hospitality that we are more akin to in our understanding here in the West. But is it one that we actually practice with real zeal? Has the way of the world made us more insular? Has the opening up of our homes become more challenging? Can we actually be bothered cooking a meal for someone for the 15th time? What motivates and inspires that desire? Is it the notice and praise of others? Or is it for the eyes of Jesus? Now, this church is a hospitable place. We have been the gracious recipients of that many a time. But that is what it is supposed to look like. And therefore, it would be remiss of us to not challenge ourselves again in that regard. To paraphrase a Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of your home? Well, the chief end of your home is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And to do that first and foremost, we do that by making our homes an outpost for the gospel a place where we can facilitate home groups and Bible studies, a place where we can comfort brothers and sisters, a place where we can welcome over lunch new people into our church, a place where we can provide comfort for the lonely and the less fortunate. Our homes are not our own. They're given to us by the grace of God and it is to be used for those aforementioned reasons, but also for reaching out to those who are yet to know him. I think I can probably count on two hands the amount of times I've been invited into someone's home for a meal by someone who's not a believer. And I've got plenty of non-Christian friends. It would take me probably an hour to write down a list of people from the church, not only this church, who have welcomed me in. It's a genuine differentiator. It really is something that's countercultural, even in this day and age. Our culture promotes social media and individualism over personal, corporate relationships. We were designed to dwell among people and for God to dwell amongst us. And so when we practice that, we demonstrate that love of good to others and we have the opportunity to share the hospitality of Christ in us. And friends, it's in the light that we see practiced in the persecuted church, it's in the light of the benefits that we know of strengthening and growing the church that we should be mindful to practice hospitality. It's an additional qualifier that is laid upon us all to be people genuine, offering Christ-centered hospitality. Let that shape and fashion the furtherance of his kingdom from this building. So we've spoken about the essential qualifications. We've considered an additional qualification. What then of two differential qualifications that I referenced a while back? There are two, I think, in this passage. One is inferred and the other is direct. I would like us to deal with the inferred one first. 
The other part of Paul's teaching, which lays out the qualifications for eldership, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7. And there's a qualification that's laid out there explicitly that's not so well seen in our passage. It's verse 6 of 1 Timothy, if you care to turn to it. It says this, He, that's an elder or overseer or pastor, or you pick your word, must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Clearly, this qualification states that it's wise to appoint someone mature in the faith when it comes to leadership, rather than someone who has not got the years of experience of varying challenges. Yet that qualification doesn't appear in our list in Titus. So the question is, does that yield the qualifications in Titus incomplete? Or does it mean that the qualifications in 1 Timothy are more onerous? And to be honest, I think the answer is rather simple. The contrast simply comes down to context. Timothy was writing, sorry, Paul was writing to Timothy at a time where the church was well established in Ephesus. Titus is written, as I've already said, to a pioneer church in Crete. One has the benefit of years of experience. The other is an embryonic church. And therefore, there is simply not the critical mass of established, well-experienced Christians present on the land. Now, that doesn't mean that experience is rendered futile. Rather, it intensifies the spotlight on the need to select men to be elders who are characteristically well-established. We get the sense of that from the repetition of the phrase present in verse 6 and 7, that phrase, above reproach. Read it with me. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. This repetition is not there as an addendum, but as an important distinction. It pushes the bar that little bit higher. The essential qualifications are there in plain text, as we have discussed, not arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy. On the contrary, one has to embody the additional qualifications like those to be hospitable, a lover of good, upright, holy, disciplined, and in all these things, and in all these things, above reproach. It isn't enough just to comply with these standards. An elder or an overseer must exemplify them and in relation to them to not be found in a position which would bring demonstration of the said qualities into question. Now that's a high standard. And other translations render this phrase above reproach as blameless, another word that's rather uncompromising in its nature. And so, friends, you'll appreciate that when I was preparing for this, it's not a particularly easy point to consider. Thinking about how I personally live up to these standards, thinking about my embodiment of the essential and additional qualifications. There are lots of areas for room for improvement. Some of you will have observed those flaws in me better than I do myself. But it's important to realize just that. 
an elder or a pastor or a bishop or an overseer or a reverend, a priest, can't be and most definitely aren't some replacement for Jesus. And therefore, when we think about being blameless, we can't appreciate that in the same sense of what we know about Jesus. They're two completely different things. Whilst the standard here set is high, it's not perfect. If it was to be a perfect standard, there would be no one in this room that could qualify. Yet it had and has to be a differential characteristic of those who would come to lead the church. In the setting of Titus, Paul was encouraging him to look for men who were counter-cultural to Cretan culture. People who did not subject themselves and their families to the fast pleasures and muddle of society. People who were faithful in their marriage vows. People who could lead their house with integrity and diligence. Who were able to control themselves and to bestow on their families a sense of discipline and commitment. Whose reputation to do so was such that it was consistent both within the life of the church and on the outside of the church walls that one's reputation could not be called into disrepute. That's what we do, and that's what we need to continue to do at Hebron. The elders of this church are to hold each other accountable to these same standards, as should the church membership hold their leadership to the same. It's of vital importance that what is preached is practiced, And on the onus on both you and I is to ensure that the church's leadership, we hold firm and we steer a steady rudder, no matter the cultural tone of the day. This is the biblical structure of leadership, and we are responsible for upholding it. The second and direct differential that qualifies an elder is that they should be able to teach. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, we need to be mindful of the context. This is a pioneer church in the island of Crete. The church is in early establishment, and the place is a cultural hodgepodge of ideas and philosophies. Paul's emphasis to Titus here is to find people who will take the gospel, the logos, the truth, and to be true to it, to not filter it, to not dilute it, to not spin it, but to hold it tight as taught. And when they share the message, they should do it soundly, present it as it was presented to them, and to call out those who would try and change that narrative. And that instruction that was sent down then is as pertinent here and now as it was then. Aberdeen is nothing different than Crete. It's a hodgepodge of ideas and philosophies. Indeed, in some ways, it would be better if those ideas and philosophies were a little bit more refined because the overriding sentiment of today is that everything is for everyone. There is no idea of exclusivity. There is no notion of one message that can be true and correct, to hold a message like that is deemed to be offensive to those who don't agree. Yet this is the central truth and appeal of the gospel. This is who God is. As Johnny explained this morning, I am who I say I am, is the one who is the very author and essence of the gospel. 
And if that wasn't true of him, then salvation is simply not possible with him. If there could be another way, if there could be more options, then what Jesus did for us would be futile because it undermines the authority of God. And therefore, for anyone to change, adapt, rewrite, omit, or add to this word equates to undermining everything God did through his Son for us on the cross. Therefore, church, hold us accountable to teaching the word as read. Hold us accountable to standing firm when culture would say otherwise. Hold us accountable to consistency, to clarity, to being prepared to take a contrary view when needed. Not because we feel like it, but because we're called to it. Hold us accountable to appointing men who will do these things. Men who will stand in the way of culture if contrary to the gospel. Men who will continue to teach the word as taught. Because for someone to hear the gospel for what it is, it needs to be delivered as it was written. This letter to Titus highlights us, highlights to us the essential qualifications for living a life marked by Christ. It calls for self-control. It adds to that the responsibility, that additional onus to go in above and beyond in service to others and the gospel. And it's then compounded by that differentiator to appoint and to hold people in roles who will exemplify these qualifications, upholding the integrity of the word as paramount. All of us here tonight have a significant role to play in that. Let us be mindful as a church to pray over it and to practice it diligently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be it our prayer tonight that as we reflect on these qualifications that we would be keen and mindful to apply them to our own lives. Lord, qualifications and criteria that bring sense and sensibility, that demonstrate self-control, that demonstrate putting others above oneself. Lord, all these characteristics that we saw epitomized on the cross as you gave your one and only son for us. And Lord, I pray that no matter how strong the headwinds become in our society, that we would seek to hold true to the truth that we've been passed down. Lord, that we would be good exemplars of that truth. And that our desire as a group of believers would be to use the word as it's our sole authority in everything that we do. And Lord, to demand that we hear that above the cultural hubbub of today. Lord, help us to put into practice what we have read tonight for your glory and for our joy. In your precious Son's name, amen.